Hello, well-being friends, and welcome to the first podcast of 2022. This is the Path to Well-Being in Law podcast, an initiative of the Institute for Well-Being in Law. Uh, I'm your co-host, Chris Newbold, Executive Vice President of Alps Malpractice Insurance. And boy, we've had a lot of fun on the podcast over the course of the last year. I think we just hit our 20th episode. And as most of our listeners know, our goal is to introduce you to thought leaders uh, in the well-being movement, doing meaningful work uh, within the legal profession. And in the process, we're really working hard to build and nurture a a national network of well-being advocates intent on creating a culture shift within the profession. And as always, uh, Bree, we have been together from the beginning. We've done all of our podcasts together. We have, we've not had to have a, uh, a guest co-host yet. So I'm certainly thankful as we begin the new year to, to uh, embark on what's, what's really a year three, because I think we got started late in 2019. Right. And, and yeah. Bri, how are you doing? How were your how were your holidays? Absolutely wonderful. And um, yeah, it's just amazing that we are in starting our third uh, year of the podcast and have had so many great guests. I hope the listeners can go back and and see the different um, really thought leaders in the well-being and law space and the idea of trying to sort of capture what they're thinking, capture trends and be able to share that among what we really see with the Institute is uh, a growing body of people throughout the legal profession who are really passionate about addressing these issues and promoting well-being across the board. And so we see this as an opportunity to, to cross-pollinate with ideas and, and, um, and share what's going on. So delighted to be here again uh, and happy new year, everybody. Yeah, and it's I, what I'm what I'm excited about. Uh, one of the things I'm excited about is is just how uh, how our movement has grown in terms of the people that have been welcomed into the into the movement over the course of the last year. I think that's going to really prove uh, to be exciting from a speaker perspective as we bring on more guests in 2022. Uh, and and I one of the things uh, I'm super excited to kick off 2022 with with a three-part series in an area that, you know, frankly is probably overdue, but something that's critically important as we've thought about where well-being ultimately goes. And that's uh, the intersection of diversity, equity, and inclusion with well-being. And so this, this will mark the first of three episodes that we focus specifically on that issue, because I, again, I don't know that you can really differentiate one from the other. And as we all know, if you've met one lawyer, you've met one lawyer, and we're all on our individual journey <laughs> as human beings, right? And, and there are some really, I think, interesting intersections with diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I know that we're very excited to kick off the new year with our friend, uh, Lindsay Draper, to, to the podcast. If you would uh, take a couple minutes and, and introduce Lindsay uh, I know that we're, we're just thrilled to have him as our first guest. Absolutely. And I am, I love working with Lindsay and just, I think the most important thing on his, his bio is that he's on our board of directors. Um, and so Lindsay has been pulling a major laboring oar with us over the past year plus um, to really get the Institute off the ground and running. And so um, Lindsay serves at, on our board of directors. He is the vice president of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so just a little bit of a background for Lindsay. This is where um, we make him blush a little bit. But as the uh, Milwaukee County Court um, Circuit Court Commissioner, 
He oversaw Wisconsin's adherence to the mandates of the Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention Act as a state's disproportionate minority contact coordinator and, complex, and compliance monitor. And that was just the day job. And then <laughs> he retires and goes on to serve in a variety of leadership roles. He served as chair of the ABA Standing Committee on Client Protection, which is how I originally met Lindsay and his work in that role. Um, he's currently the chair of the board of directors of the St. Charles Youth and Family Services in Milwaukee. Um, he's been in the past a director at large of the National Client Protection Organization and is a liaison to the Wisconsin Task Force on Lawyer Wellbeing. And not just a liaison, I'm looking at his bio, understates his involvement. Lindsay was really key in the efforts to get that work up and moving. So, um, Lindsay, welcome today. And I'm going to start off by asking you a question we uh, ask all of our guests at the very beginning um, to talk to, you, to us about, to say hi, but then also talk to us, what are your, um, the experience in your life that may be a driver behind your passion for the work that we're doing here at the Institute? And I just want to hear a little bit about that. So, Lindsay, welcome to the podcast. Well, first off, Bri and Chris, thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. And I want to start with, and part of why I'm excited is that I don't want anyone to miss how much the Institute has made diversity, equity, and inclusion a focus of the work that is done. That one of the things that uh, I recall from the first moment that I was asked about possibly serving in the role of vice president for DEI, uh, one of the things I recall was at the point that I indicated that it was going to be a learning curve for me because most of my work had been local. It had been in the state of Wisconsin. I was a government employee most of that early part of my career. And then the part that was on the national basis was with the National Client Protection Organization. I needed to learn a lot about what the well-being work involved. Obviously, um, I saw the, the report uh, that the task force did. I initially was the liaison from the National Client Protection Organization. And the reason I had to start with all of that talk was in the work with the National Client Protection Organization, I got the chance to see what happens when lawyers are not healthy. Mm. We, we were involved in trying to make good to people who trusted lawyers. And a large part of that involved clients who were people of color, people who were immigrants, people who were frankly underserved by the legal community. And as I got the chance to see who the victims were and the people who lost, I also came to understand that a number of the lawyers who frankly messed up weren't ill-intentioned. Many of them had struggles. So it was having had a number of years working with the Standing Committee on Client Protection, working with Wisconsin's committee, 
that I got the chance to see how important it is for clients that lawyers be healthy. And obviously, starting with having been in law school, I've been a part of the legal community. So just watching those areas um, meant a lot to me. And frankly, by virtue of being African-American, I've seen what difference it makes in various places, whether it's having people in law school assume that I got in as part of an affirmative action outreach, um, having people in various parts of the legal community make some assumptions over time that there were limited abilities, I guess. Um, I got the chance to see the impact that um, unrepresented, excuse me, underrepresented communities have in the profession and how long-term micro and macro aggressions can have impact on well-being. So those were all of the things that contributed to why I'm so excited about being part of this. Mm, great, great perspective. And Lindsay, as you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion has, has is such a, I think, vital issue now at the forefront of our profession and frankly, the, the country at the moment. And you know, even when you go back to our originating report that served as a catalyst to the movement, it, it, it's interesting in retrospect to go back and, and see that there really wasn't a lot of discussion in that report about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And obviously, as uh, events in society in the summer of 2020 brought this to the forefront, it, you know, it, it's, 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 we really don't, can't now put well-being and law in a silo without considering how, what, how diversity, equity, and inclusion intersects that. And I, I'm just kind of curious in your mind, how, how do they intersect and how, how do you look at that? Well, there are several pieces. And part, I think you start with what the question you just asked is a huge part of the answer to the question. Hmm. There are a number of incredibly well-meaning people who, when you point out, by the way, this didn't get addressed or not a lot of attention got paid to this are surprised because it didn't occur that the issue of diversity, equity, inclusion played nearly the role that it does. Uh, that I don't think a lot of times we are aware, and I frankly need to include myself in part of this discussion. Um, very early in the role that I had as DEI uh, vice president, I talked with other members of the board. And after having explained what it was that I saw as the goals, and after having talked about some of the uh, paths that I would like to see the Institute take, I got asked, Lindsay, do you see this as mainly an issue for people of color? And it was a whole matter of, you do know that you never talked about gender in what you were saying. As time has passed, and as I have gotten more and more personally aware of 
how big the conversation needs to be, it's also become much more important that this not just be a matter of bringing people to the table, but also a continuing dynamic discussion of how do we make sure that the people we have brought to the table stay there, but also feel valued and included as part of the discussion. Absolutely, yeah. You know, and I think that it's it's incumbent upon all of us to pay attention to that. You know, I think about <clears throat> making it where people can stay there and people feel comfortable, valued, welcome in the profession. Um, and that's for, for everyone. And I also think about it, the issue of, um, in regards to particularly well-being, the issue of sustainability and that, how do you make this a profession that everybody can be a part of for a long time because and and you know I am a present as a white cisgendered woman so I have to listen a lot um, and try to learn uh, but I what I hear and I can certainly understand is the incessant microaggressions that occur in our society and in our profession wears one down, of course it would, and it impacts that ability to stay, to work, to be, to make this a sustainable profession for people. Is that, is that something that you say too, Lindsay? That's a very large part of the conversation. Uh, one of the things that I think gets missed sometimes um, in looking at how people can rise in the profession or how people can stay is what happens. And, and the example that was brought to my attention uh, by an attorney in Madison, Wisconsin, had to do with how often he walked into the courtroom and the very first thing that got said, sometimes by bailiffs, sometimes by clerks, was as he approached the bench to register or sign in was wait till your lawyer gets here. The automatic assumption, you've got to be the defendant. You have to have a lawyer. No opportunity for anybody to learn who this person was. And that's a common experience. And the reason that it came up was this was a person who was leaving the legal profession, just simply feeling, I can't take this anymore. Wow. Uh, that, that, and, you know, one of the things that happens, and depending, my career, for the most part, was in the juvenile justice system, and sometimes part of it in the criminal justice system. But one of the things that happens there is, over time, people learn who you are. If you are in a different part of the system where people don't know who you are, it becomes that much easier for people to make assumptions simply based on having seen you that, oh, you must be the defendant. You must have a lawyer coming to help you out. The other part um, that I know people do and say things meaning to be, complimentary, but there's a point 
that you get tired of hearing how well-spoken you are or how well you put together a brief. Oh my that, Lord. Where people are surprised that you're competent. And if you stop to think about how over time that regularly occurring beats you down, then you understand why sometimes when you start the discussions that say, let's work on DEI, you have some lawyers who say, I'm tired of educating people. Why are we not talking about making sure I'm healthy? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, one of the things too, also, Lindsay, I was thinking <clears throat> in preparation for this podcast and talking to you today is, you know, when I go out and do, because I have a day job and I do speaking on um, just lawyer well-being issues, and I've really tried to have started in the past year and a half to include some discussion um, on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And the, the piece that I folded into is around kind of unpacking the I of DEI, the inclusion piece, um, and the idea of that there's a tremendous amount of scientific research that for people who are excluded, and there's a phrase called thwarted belongingness, that that has documented real negative mental health outcomes. And it's just, um, it's really striking to me to hear that. And I, th I think there's nothing for me personally that I think is more painful is the idea of being excluded, of being kept out of, um, out of uh, the circle of where things happen, you know? Um, yes. And what an incredibly painful place that is. And I just remember in an early conversation, Lindsay and I had, and, and you um, talked a little bit about just putting it in very real basic terms about being able to feel welcome in a space. Do you, are you, are you made to feel welcome? And that's, that's a real basic phrase that any human can understand. And to not have that, I mean, that just, when you talked about that, I just remembered it cracked my heart open because, and was a real just light bulb for me because I felt, I got it on a feeling level. Um, it was just really powerful. Um, and I, anyway, just thinking about the idea around inclusion, exclusion, and um, how painful that can be and the damage it can cause over time. So one of my favorite slides, uh, whenever I get the chance to do a presentation, is the inclusion slide that says, you know, equity is being invited to a party. Inclusion is being asked to dance. Mm. That one of the things that's important is not only to be present, because, you know, you can be present in a whole bunch of places where you're not particularly welcome, frankly, mm. or where people don't necessarily respect what you've got to say. Mar being marginalized is, I think, the term that for a long time uh, was used to describe what happens. That is, that if the discussions at the meeting rarely include any opportunity for what you have to say 
or what you may think or how certain policies may impact not just you, but um, others who have some of the same views, then you, over time, well, first off, you start looking, you know, why am I here? Because there's a point that the good salary or, you know, I don't know, the window in your office doesn't carry nearly the weight as, oh, good Lord, I don't want to go to work today. And so that's an important piece. Let me go back to something though, Bree, and I, I wanna be sure we talk about one other issue that was part of uh, the inclusion part. And that's the piece that says we have to recognize that all of the issues, and this is part of what I was starting on when I mentioned having had the gender issue brought to my attention. When we're talking about inclusion, there are some parts that we really do see a lot more now than we always did. And for instance, the LGBTQ plus community is one that we at least recognize a, a, a bit more. Disabilities are, a are one of the areas that we have to be careful on because part of what um, disabilities sometimes, they're not just physical that in the Wisconsin task force, I was reminded that some mental health issues, people who have certain diagnoses who are able to function quite well as lawyers and to be really good lawyers, but sometimes there are some assumptions that get made if in fact anyone knows that I'm being treated for the following. So, um, I, I, I do want to be sure that when we are having this conversation, and that's why the marginalized part of this discussion is important to me, we also recognize that we as lawyers, and frankly, we as people who are trying to be sensitive to the issue, have to be open to the fact that we still don't see everybody at times and don't see the impact of some decisions we make. The open bar, for instance, at state bar conferences um, is an example that I think we all think of. We sometimes forget the number of golf outings that accompany our events and are the bonding time you know, not everybody can go to the to the golf outing, or not everybody has interest in it. Um, sometimes, the lack of wanting to drink isn't just a matter of having concerns about substance abuse. Sometimes it has to do with religious reasons. Right. Sometimes right. It's, it's just health related. So there are a lot of things that the reason that I say the whole well-being issue and DEI issue is has to be dynamic, has to be continuous. Uh, Lindsay, I think that's a good transition to kind of this, you know, how, how do we influence leaders and all of our brethren, I guess, in the, in the profession that if you care about well-being, you have to care about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it is about this dynamic, you know, continuousness that kind of goes hand in hand. I'd love to hear your perspective on, on, on why these are inextricably linked if we're really searching for progress. 
Well, first of all, we have to bear in mind that lawyers have clients. We have people that we serve. And many of those are people from underrepresented or diverse communities. And it's important to know the perspectives, to know the lives, to know the interests, to know the, the I don't know, the well-being and what is in the best interest of the people we serve. Secondly, there's a huge amount of information and perspective that comes that sometimes there are ways of approaching problems, ways of approaching issues, ways of looking at how do we grow as a profession, how do we improve as a profession that can be better off if we hear different voices. And I think one of the things that at times we forget is that as much as we in the profession may have succeeded because we have a certain outlook and a certain determination, we might have done better if we had included others and if we had looked to what others had to say. The notion that we are a healthy profession, but we don't take into account the well-being of some of our members is one that pretty much contributes to things like the aging of the profession. Let's do this. Let's let's take a, a, a quick break here from one of our sponsors. And uh, we're joined by uh, Lindsay uh, Draper out of Wisconsin. And, and uh, you know, let's, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Meet Vera, your firm's virtual ethics risk assessment guide. Developed by Alps, Vera's purpose is to help you uncover risk management blind spots from client intake to calendaring to cybersecurity and more. I require only your honest input to my short series of questions. I will offer you a summary of recommendations to provide course corrections if needed and to keep your firm on the right path. Generous and discreet, Vera is a free and anonymous risk management guide from Alps to help firms like yours be their best. Visit Vera at alpsinsurance.com forward slash Vera. Welcome back everybody to our podcast. And today we have Lindsay Draper of Wisconsin, who is among many other things, the Vice President of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion on our Board of Directors for the Institute. And so we've been having some really um, meaningful conversation here in the first half. And I wanna, and, it, and it's been, for me, it's been really it's sort of in, an interior reflection type of comments and, and discussion. And I wanna move a little bit externally. And, um, and so Lindsay, have you seen out in the legal profession, diversity initiatives that you think are making an impact and any that quite frankly aren't? Okay, so it's possible to give you a short answer and that would be yes. But what <laughs> I what I want to talk about, and, and I've, I've mentioned earlier that a lot of what has happened since I've been a part of uh, first the task force and then uh, the Institute has been you know, the learning curve for me. 
And so one of the pieces that I want to talk about comes from having worked with the Wisconsin Task Force. And that is when we started looking at who are the people who contribute to the profession um, and what roles they play. And so the reason I wanted to start with that is because um, wonderful work has been being done at law schools. And considering how very much law schools not only have to work with people who are under stress anyway, trying to get into the profession, worried about the fitness question that's gonna get examined when they try and get admitted, worried about the interviews for placement, that if you bring to those communities also issues where they're confronted with the questions, do you really belong here? Do you fit in? Uh, that I have been just really incredibly impressed with some of the work that law schools have done to recognize that not only do we have students under stress, that just as lawyers under stress sometimes resort to some ways that um, involve unhealthy habits, um, the law students do as well. And those law students have a great reluctance to ask for help. We're supposed to be the type A achiever and to admit the need for help is to admit a weakness that most don't want to admit. So what I've seen in schools, and I got the chance to see both what, for instance, the University of Wisconsin did and what Marquette did. Uh, Marquette actually had a law student who had some substance abuse problems who made not only public his fight, but also the things that, that he did. And that same story can be replicated at a number of law schools. Members of our committee, uh, some of the members of our committee are actually from law schools. And so I wanna start with, I have been extremely impressed with the work that a number of law schools have, including recognizing that it would be important to bring people from those governmental entities that will decide if you get admitted to the bar to say, you need to address what will keep you healthy. We will work with you. We want you to be a healthy lawyer as opposed to we're looking for reasons to not let you in. That's such a critical message for law schools to get across early is do not be afraid to seek help. Get it before you hurt yourself, your client, and the profession. So that would be one of the things that I think is important. On a governmental area, we on the, uh, in, at the Institute have the incredible uh, benefit of having service from a representative from Massachusetts. Looking at the work that they have, looking at people who have developed not only an interest and a commitment to diversity, equity, inclusion, and well-being, but also embedded in their work. People who 
have this focus. So um, I, I look to the state of Massachusetts because frankly, a lot of what I personally have been able to learn and do came from patterning after a lot of what they did. So there are a number of places, you know, there are a number of states uh, that were leaders. I, you know, you can't overlook the work that Virginia did. But in looking at DEI, th those would be two things. One is a huge amount of respect for law schools. Secondly, looking at states like Massachusetts. And Lizzie, is that because of the the advancements made in welcoming conversation around challenges that those individuals in law school or in states ultimately feel? I mean, is it is it a cultural component? Because obviously there's admission related issues as well and other areas. So it's it kind of feels to me that it, again, going back to this this feeling welcomed in the space of becoming a lawyer, being licensed as a lawyer, being welcomed into the courtroom, uh, how how you're perceived, um, it, it seems to go back to that notion of, you know, how, how we start the process is critically important to the to a cultural evolution that if it continues can only benefit both the profession and the way that the profession is seen. So I think my answer to that would be, again, sort of twofold and just sort of bear in mind that uh, there is, and, and, and I, I touched on it a second ago, there is no single African-American lawyer, African-American female lawyer, gay African-American female lawyer. I mean, that, that there are so many different parts of who people are. And one of the things that happens over the course of life is you develop sensitivities to things. And, you know, there are frankly people who look for aggression, but there are also people who recognize when it's happening. Well, if you just start with that, and then you realize that you've got a culture in the legal profession, and you've got some decisions that people have to make. And I, what I want to, where I'm going with this is if, for instance, you have a law firm that welcomes a member of an underrepresented group into the, the firm and decides, we want you here. And here's your case. And that person ends up getting treatment for a substance abuse, for instance, does the firm run the risk in not letting the client know, you know, have you shared some information you weren't supposed to share? If you don't, have you not done the right thing by your client? And then if the attorney hears or feels that he or she is being undercut. I think the normal first response is going to be because I'm African-American or because I mean, and if you think about how many different questions arise under the circumstances. That's why the commitment to the whole D, the whole E and the whole I is critical. Because there are a lot of questions that are going to arise 
and a lot of decisions that are going to have to be made all the way along. You can't be human without having some things happen in your life. You're not going to be perfect your whole life. And you just need to be sure that when we take a look at the decisions that get made, they're made in a comfortable environment. Hmm. Lindsay, if, as, as, uh, as Vice President of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion for the Institute, talk a little bit about Again, it's been it's been a journey thus far, right? In terms of including more perspectives, and I'd love for you to expand on some of the areas that you see the group um, kind of laying out as part of its strategic plan to ensure that there again is a is a connectedness between these two issues that we we know is real and is uh, only if we work on them in in conjunction will we see uh, even stronger progress. Well, you actually um, raised a significant part there when talking about the strategic plan, because among the things um, that happens, the more people you have on a committee, the more different ideas you have, the more different areas of focus that you're going to have. But one of the things that's been really, really critical, and, and I really do have to say how proud I am to be part of the Institute and the Institute has made a conscious effort uh, to say, we may have messed up in not looking at some things from the beginning, but we want to do that. Um, the committee has made a big point of saying, we can help the other parts of the Institute if we know what they're doing before everybody's way down the road, if we can be part of helping frame the questions get asked. Um, and, and an example of what I am discussing, one of the things the committee has said is, I've looked at the panels presenting at various entities or various programs. I don't see a whole lot of underrepresented people on these panels. Part of what the committee has is the ability to help the Institute, because the Institute has said, give us some names help identify people who are very capable, who are very knowledgeable, but who haven't had the opportunity to show that. Um, that's why, for instance, where you've had members who've been active in presenting conferences, they know some speakers that maybe others don't know. They know some people who've done research that maybe others haven't seen. So not only making sure that there are diverse voices in the decisions of the Institute and in the work of the Institute, but also making sure that we are looking for other capable, accomplished people who can bring not just a different perspective, but also an incredible expertise to the work that we're all doing. Or you might be on mute. There you go. So I think we may have just found our first time we have to edit. <laughs> so just... I did that. Just keep going. That's crazy. Let's keep going, Brie. We're good. <clears throat> Sorry, my voice is giving out. 
Well, if we can just take a moment here. I was thinking that we would move towards sort of wrapping up just because of the, the time. Lindsay, I'd, I'd love for our, our final question to be just, a, I guess, a reflection point, right? Of, of you know, you, you've, you've seen uh, a lot of uh, activity in this arena, right? Uh, we were clearly not where we need to be. Um, although I think in some respects, we are uh, more readily talking about some of the challenges in a much more robust way than ever before. But, but I'd, I'd love for you to just give your perspective on um, your outlook for the future. Are, are, you, are you optimistic? Is the, is the tenor of the discussion moving in ways that has you excited? Um, cautiously optimistic, uh, fearful, right? So I, I would just love for you to kind of give us as we kind of conclude this podcast, your perspective as we think about well-being, as we, as we, as we think about uh, challenges of um, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, as we see those kind of coming together, what do you think? What, what's, what's, your, what, what's your sense of where we currently stand and where we're going? We have to start with, I'm incredibly optimistic. Uh, there's a part of me that's incredibly grateful that we're having this conversation, that there was a time when we were not, that as more and more people become aware that well-being, which everybody seems to be comfortable with, that's an important piece, affects different people differently. And it's important that well-being go across the board that all lawyers um, be able to address well-being and the way that they address it isn't the same. We're talking about that, but more than just talking about it, the fact that there is an effort being made to identify not just that there's a problem, but to offer steps that people can take to try and address the problem. I carefully avoided the word solutions because that's hard to say. Our profession is constantly evolving. There are things from left field, the pandemic, for example, that no one would anticipate that have impact on well-being of lots of people, affect some communities more than others and in different ways. So I, I feel really good that we are having the discussion. I am somewhat worried that DEI is a term that, you know, sometimes people say, okay, we have to do that. Everybody's got to have that discussion. Everybody's got to have that committee. I'm, I worry a bit that just like the assumptions got made about affirmative action, at, you know, a half century ago, that uh, DEI may become the, oh, yes, we have to have that conversation. But that's why I've been really thrilled to be part of the Institute where no, this is not, you know, item seven on the agenda and we'll okay. talk about it after we get all the business of the day uh, taken care of, that it's been something that from the very beginning, the Institute has said, this is a priority. And the fact that there's an effort made to keep it there. So um, the cautiously optimistic um, but also really pleased that we're having the conversation and that we've been able to identify so many very talented, valuable, committed people who are working on the area. 
Yeah. And, and I think that's the, that's a great way to end. I think this podcast is, is again, how influential you, your committee has been at looking to shape the perspectives that are coming into ultimately building the movement and setting the tone for the culture shift that I think that we are all yearning for, which is to make well-being a centerpiece of professional success in the, in the profession. And I, I know, you know, from my own perspective, you know, I, I, we all have to be more sensitive to some of the challenges, you know, as, and as we allocate resource bandwidth as an institute, just being mindful that, you know, again, the going back to, you know, if you met one lawyer, you've met one lawyer, and we're all on our own individual journeys as human beings. And some of those challenges are markedly, markedly different for some relative to others. And, and uh, so I'm, Lindsay, a, a heartfelt thank you for, again, your leadership, your work, your vision, uh, your vulnerability in terms of being able to say, I don't, I don't know at all, but I'm certainly right. going to lean in with my perspectives. And I'm going to learn along the way, because I know that you're in a learning journey. I'm in a learning journey. Bree's in a learning journey, right? Of, of, of betterment, right? Of, of, again, having a passion for making a profession, a better profession, and one that's more responsive to not just the needs of the lawyers that compose it, but ultimately the people that we serve who depend on us to be solution makers for, you know, the betterment of, of society. So, Lindsay... Yeah. And I just wanted to throw in here too. I really appreciate the conversations that we have. Um, You know, I've had multiple conversations with with Lindsay and that this is an ongoing conversation, an ongoing discussion, and one that we continue to pick back up again and again and again throughout our work. And and that's been a delightful aspect, Lindsay, of working with you is that, that we can have these conversations and really honest ones. And so thank you. Thank you for that. Sure. Oh, thank you. I thank you. And I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be a part of the Institute and its work, but also for the incredibly talented people with whom I've had the opportunity to serve. Yeah, and we will, we will be back with more perspectives around this particular issue in our next couple, couple of episodes. And uh, again, there, you know, for those of you who are new to the podcast, uh, just some really insightful conversations with all different types of leaders of our movement in our first 20 episodes. I would encourage you to go back and and look at the the synopsis on our on our website. One of the things I'll also conclude with is um, I think we will include our diversity, equity, and inclusion policy that was adopted by our board of directors. Actually, our first action as a uh, as a governing board, we'll post that in conjunction with this podcast as well. So. Uh, signing off. Be well out there, friends, and we will be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks.